Just let it go. Easier it, said than done. <laughs> but I always yeah. say you can't yeah. let anything go because it's happened to you. Yeah. So how are you going to let that go? It's You're just you, yeah. disenfranchising yourself, really letting things be. And it just changes the perspective of everything. I think when you do let things go, when I'm speaking loosely here, but it does deny you of that experience, even if it's a negative one. You're listening to The Sue Podcast with your host, Brian Keeney. This is the place to hear from members of the Sault Ste. Marie community and beyond. We're on a mission to give local voices a platform to share their stories and experiences. Whether it's supporting small business, discussing local politics, or tracking real estate trends. Find it all on the Sioux Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Sioux Podcast. Today, we're honored to have a truly inspiring guest with us. Tiffany Kaiko is someone who has seamlessly integrated her love for people, yoga, art, meditation, and wellness into her daily life and clinical practice in Sault Ste. Marie. As a registered psychotherapist in Ontario, Tiffany holds a master's in counseling psychology and has extensive experience in contemplative and mindfulness-based psychology. Her training includes mindfulness-based stress reduction, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, and a year-intensive training training about compassion, allowing her to provide evidence-based techniques to support her clients. But Tiffany's dedication to her field goes beyond traditional therapies. She's also a certified art therapist and play therapist, and she firmly believes in the power of creative expression as a tool for healing and personal growth. She has an in-depth understanding of death and dying, a study known as thanatology, which she acquired through her certificate program at Sheridan College. This enables her to provide compassionate support during difficult life transitions. Not only is Tiffany an expert in psychology, but she's also a registered yoga and meditation teacher with over a decade of teaching experience. She uses her profound knowledge in these disciplines to guide individuals in cultivating mindfulness, self-awareness, and holistic well-being. Tiffany operates her private practice, The Soul Compass, on Queen Street in Sault Ste. Marie, where she creates a nurturing environment that combines creativity and movement. She specializes in art and play therapy, contemplative psychotherapies, movement-based approaches, and a wealth of experience in working with childhood anxiety disorders, as well as assisting adults in managing various challenges. Currently, Tiffany is completing her doctorate in clinical psychology. Tiffany, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I remember during our pre-show discussions that when we were talking about some of the ideas that you might want to share with the Sioux community through our platform, I was just thinking to myself like, how am I going to fit all of this in like a two or three hour episode? It just felt like there was so much I wanted to dive into. The idea of mental well-being and mental health and that sort of thing is not a new topic on our show. We've had guests come on the show and talk about that stuff before, but I was just so fascinated by just reading your bio into the recording right now by some of the work that you've done, especially around play therapy and that kind of thing. So I had some questions prepared for you. Before we jump into all of that, why don't you tell Sault Ste. Marie who Tiffany Kaiko is? Oh boy, that's a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> Professionally, I am a registered psychotherapist and I work in Sault Ste. Marie. I'm an owner or co-founder of The Soul Compass, which is my business. And essentially, I'm a holistic practitioner and working with children and adults in Sault Ste. Marie and all over Ontario, actually. I wanted to integrate everything that I love and everything that I think is meaningful in helping people and their wellness, which is movement, art, meditation, 
creative types of therapies, and that includes art, music, and movement, along with the evidence-based talk stuff, that talk therapy, like the cognitive behavioral therapy that has proven to be so effective in treating a lot of mental health disorders, in particular anxiety. So I wanted to create an environment where people felt at ease in their healing. And I love the creative aspect, actually, because sometimes there aren't words enough for experiences. We know that. And think of it right now. Let me ask you to imagine or to think of water. Okay. Okay. So take a minute and just... Do I have to close my eyes? <laughs> yeah, close your eyes. Okay, I'm going to close my eyes. I'm doing Close it. your eyes. All right. Okay. So let me ask you, what arises for you? I'm thinking about a particular beach that I visited when I was in Greece on vacation once. And I have a very clear memory of what it looked like when I was there. Okay. So are you seeing images? Are you seeing a picture of this in your mind? Yep. I'm seeing a clear image. Yeah. A clear image and yep. some colors. And yep. are you hearing anything? Yes, I am. Yeah. yeah. I've got obviously the waves coming in and out. It was actually dark. I went there quite late at night. So it was largely an audio experience for me because it was so dark that you wouldn't see as much of the stuff you would during the day. But in terms of the light, there was a bunch of houses off in the distance to my right. That was a very cliche scene. You see those white houses in Greece sitting along the waterfront. People have seen stuff like that online, and I'm sure that's what I'm remembering right now. Yeah. So it's interesting because you didn't say or spell out water, W-A-T-E-R. <laughs> no, I didn't do that. <laughs> yeah. And most people don't because we think in images. That's a lot of how we think and how we feel, and we're connected to that. So that's why the creative therapies can be- Can I open my eyes now? Yeah. Okay. I was like, what's coming next? Wait, I didn't even notice that you still had them closed. Like, Sorry. Uh, that's okay. <laughs> so that's the power of how we can use images and imagery in our creative therapies, because we think that way. We think very creatively, and we're very attuned to all of our senses. So that's why I like art therapy and play therapy. Tiffany, can you share with our audience how you became interested in integrating this idea of yoga, art, meditation, wellness, and all of that, and then bringing that into the space of a clinical medical practice situation? Sure. Back in the 70s, when I was a young girl, I was fortunate to have a really creative mother who was into a lot of different things, yoga, meditation, health foods, and I credit her and her influence to a lot of what I'm doing today. So she had introduced me to yoga and meditation and art when I was a child. So that was always something that was part of me, although I never really pursued that initially in my academic endeavors. So I actually graduated with a history degree. And I think initially I wanted to be a teacher, maybe a lawyer. That was something that crossed my mind, which I did neither of those. But I did enter the corporate world and I was always doing communications. That's where I landed, writing and marketing and advertising and that sort of thing. There's a lot of psychology to all of that, actually. So oh, it makes sense. Yeah. And in around 2010, 2012, I'd been in the workforce for almost 20 years by that point. And I decided it was time for me to make an exit out of the corporate world or working in an office or a cubicle under fluorescent lights. And I was always that type of person that felt very confined when I was working in an office. And it wasn't really working for me at that point. So I had an opportunity to take a month off and I thought, I'm going to go do a yoga retreat somewhere. And I found a place to do this yoga retreat. And just with the intention, simply to be close to a beach, eat great food, vegetarian food, and do yoga every day. I thought, oh, this is wonderful. Sounds wonderful. It was amazing. Yeah. And uh, the only place I could find was a teacher training. So I thought, that's okay. I'm going to go. I have no intention of being a yoga teacher at all. So I went and I did my training. And near the end of the training, my teacher, his name was Craig, he said, hey, listen, I really want you to do this teach out. And I said, you know what, Craig, I'm absolutely not doing the teach out. I'm not getting up in front of these people. I don't really want to be a yoga teacher. I came here just to relax for the month. And he said, 
said, no, really, there's a group of people who are really going to appreciate you as a yoga teacher. I think you should do it. So I was really nervous to get up in front of this group and teach a yoga class as my teach out, but I thought maybe I'll do it. What's the harm? So I did it and I walked away with my 200 hour yoga certification. And as soon as I got back to the Sioux, I thought I'm going to visit Jade Yoga in the Sioux and just speak with Sherling, the owner. And I said, hey, listen, I just graduated. I'd love to teach some yoga classes. And she said, great, come on. So she got me in right away. And I remember fiercely studying for my very first yoga class. I think I put in two hours writing notes and memorizing my flow and trying to come up with all these meaningful things to say during my yoga class. And I ended up teaching there for about seven years. But early on, what I noticed was students after four or five classes or six to eight classes of weekly classes, they'd say, hey, I'm sleeping better. My relationships are better. I'm more relaxed. I'm feeling more joy. What's going on here? And I'd say, hey, it's great. What's working? That's wonderful. But then people would come up to me and say, hey, I'm having a problem in my relationship. Okay. <laughs> can you help me? <laughs> what what tips can you give me? And so they would start to ask my advice about mental health and thinking that I could somehow help them. And I remember distinctly thinking to myself, hey, there's a distinction between being a yoga teacher and helping people with their mental health problems. And I never, ever offered any kind of advice or even tips. I would say, hey, listen, I'm a yoga teacher. This is not my area of expertise. But it got me thinking, hey, I think there's something to this. I think there is something to the benefits of yoga that extend beyond the yoga room and off the mat. And I think it can be really beneficial for a number of different mental health disorders or conditions or issues. So that was one area that got me really thinking that, hey, maybe I can do something more. And of course, art. I've always been a grassroots artist. I'm (laughs) definitely not a Picasso. I like to express myself creatively in different ways. And I do gardening and rock formations and acrylic on canvas. This is something that I've always done and always been interested in doing. And I like decor and all that stuff. And somebody had suggested that I look into art therapy. And I thought, okay, this is cool because this is also similar to yoga in a way. And I didn't mention this, but a part of the yoga is that it's a nonverbal type of healing where you go in the room and it's essentially you're being guided by an instructor, but it's just you, your body, and going through these movements and connecting with breath and really going through and learning how to self-regulate, essentially. You're really processing a lot in the yoga room or through that type of exercise or activity on a different level. So I thought that was a really cool thing about yoga too and art. It's that you're processing information and you're healing in ways that are nonverbal. And it can be very powerful because it's more of a body-based thing, right? You're really connecting with sensations in the body as opposed to really thinking about how you're going to try and solve this problem that you have. In a way, it's a little bit more intuitive. It can be more forgiving, feels a whole lot better. So that's how I viewed the art therapy as well. So I thought, oh, wow, that's really cool. And I think I could really do something by integrating the yoga and the meditation and art. Wow, so cool. But then the talk therapy or the evidence-based stuff is also, I feel, and people might argue this, but the glue that holds it together. Because anyone can do a few mews and run a meditation and slap some paint on a page, but it has to also be meaningful. So taking all of that and making it meaningful in terms of being able to offer the client or the participant some more in-depth understanding or be able to guide them in a way that's going to translate into something meaningful and having the experience to know what to say and what not to say. Because a lot of times too, this body-based work, the art and the somatic type of therapies, they bring up a lot of 
stuff. They open a lot of doors and trigger traumas and we could be flooded with emotion and different types of sensations in the body and it can actually be dangerous in a way. I wanted to be able to have that expertise so that I could do no harm, right? That do no harm principle and be able to help my clients heal in a safe manner. That could be really cool and meaningful and unique. Everything came together at once for me and I decided to do my master's and art therapy essentially at the same time. I started with my master's in counseling psych and then about a year and a half into my master's, I started the art therapy program and I'll tell you the art therapy program, it was almost like doing a second master's. It was tough. It was a lot of work and totally worth it. Yeah, so that's what got me going. Yeah. To what extent is the medical community from a, as you say, evidence-based, empirical-based perspective. To what extent is the science starting to study and perhaps even establish the clinical benefit of things like art therapy, play therapy, yoga, and that kind of thing? Because I think there's a tendency for people to think that these are two perhaps alternative paths to well-being. It's like if there's something I'm going through in my life that's affecting my mental health, I can either go to a psychiatrist and get a prescription for a pill, or I can go to a teacher and learn yoga, or I can try to do both, but these are two competing solutions. I don't want to necessarily have to live in a world where these two things are so separate. Is the science starting to investigate these other ways of achieving well-being that doesn't necessarily always have to come out of a bottle? Yeah, it's a great question. First, let me say that I think in a perfect world, we wouldn't need drugs, pharmaceuticals, or psychologists or mental health providers. I think there's a need for both at some level, but I think your question is highlighting the fact that really over the last, let's say, 40 years, for sure, it's been heavily focused on pharmaceutical interventions and evidence-based or the literature's really been stewed in that kind of Western empirical ideology. And there's a lot of reasons why that's been changing and I won't get into that. But one of them as it relates to what we're talking about is the advent of functional MRIs. In the 90s, it became more popular and they're able actually to look at what's going on in the brain, which is something that hadn't really been done earlier while they were developing all these drugs to supposedly help people with their mental health issues. I can't cite any studies, but in my readings, I had come across the fact that they could actually measure what was going on in the brain while somebody was on these medications. And they realized that sometimes there's more to it, actually. There's more going on in the brain than what we know, and that's come to light with the advent of these functional MRIs. And so we know that these drugs are not the answer, right? And there's need for different and more holistic approaches. And I think the literature now, I think there's a lot of researchers investigating the benefits of yoga investigating the benefits of breathing and breath work, investigating art therapy. I know for a long time, it wasn't researched sufficiently, right? And they're starting now to do more research on the benefits of art therapy and linking it with neuroscience. So that's a good thing. They're also starting to do way more research on what's going on with the foods you eat and environmental toxins and stress and how there's so much that impacts mind, body, soul. So I do think that they're opening up to that. And there's so much work that needs to be done, but I think it's happening, which is a great thing. In your experience working with patients in Sault Ste. Marie, in this local community, what seems to be the primary or most common issue and mental health concerns that your patients are generally bringing to you and what sort of treatment modalities have you been applying? I know we've been talking a lot about the art therapy, play therapy, and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. How have you seen that, for lack of a better expression, where the rubber hits the road in this community in your actual clinical practice? Because it's very fascinating to consider the 
theory behind this sort of thing, but I am curious to know like the day-to-day experience that you've seen working in the community. Well, I work with all ages. With having play and art as a foundational therapy or modality that I use, naturally, it's perfect for children. It's also perfect for a lot of other nonverbal or people who have difficulty with verbal with language, right? Autism, Alzheimer's disease, brain injury. I don't work with those specific groups. I work primarily with children who have struggles with anxiety. And let me tell you, that is one thing that's, I believe, what I'm seeing in the last few years on the rise. It's incredible in a sense that it's primarily targeting young girls who are also experiencing a lot of bullying. It's amazing. Every mother or father or parent who calls regarding concerns for their children, bullying is a really big factor. It's really sad. There seems to be a lack of, not civility, but civility for sure, but just kindness. It's what is going on with these kids. I know that's something that's part of the human condition, but it's so pervasive now. And I'll tell you, it really impacts these little minds. They come in and they're so distraught and they're crying and they're upset. They don't want to go to school. No wonder I wouldn't want to go to school if I had people making fun of me or bullying me. So it's really pervasive and it's concerning. So that's one thing I noticed and it creates a lot of anxiety. So I'm seeing that. And of course, that disrupts sleep in kids. And sleep is so important, we know, for learning and for memory and especially as you're growing, right, to make sure that you're meeting all of those developmental milestones. And as the brain develops, sleep is so important. Screen time is also impacting that as well. So that's one thing I'm noticing. So really helping kids relax through play and through art is helpful because it's also regulating their body, right? Because it helps them with that sensory stuff. And so it helps calm the body and it also helps them work through their problems in a different way. So that's one thing. With adults, noticing a lot of people dissatisfied with work. I bet. Yeah, a lot. So that's problematic. And that's one of those things that, hey, you got to work, right? You can't just check out. It would be nice to say, hey, take a year off and eat well and meditate all day. It would be great to say that, but that's not the reality of it. So most people can't afford to do that in this economy. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. for sure. I think you need a balance, right? But that's a really tricky one because a lot of people struggling with life transition, grief and loss and acceptance. And a lot of people are really hard on themselves. So a lot of criticism and rigid thinking. So that art and breathing and contemplative work really helps shift the perspective just to see the world a little differently, right? It's, hey, you're wearing these glasses. Let's just take those off and let's switch out the lenses here and try to see the world a little differently and see if that makes a difference. You mentioned the importance of sleep. Yeah. And this is just so super relevant to something Tracy and I were dealing with recently, actually. So I got her a Fitbit a few months ago for Valentine's Day. I think it was Valentine's Day. Yeah, it was Valentine's Day. (laughs) She wears it every day and it gives her all kinds of cool data about her health and it displays it on her phone and stuff. I don't have a Fitbit. I don't really know how it works, but she's got a lot of practice using it now. And one of the things that this device will do is when you wake up in the morning, it'll give you all this interesting information about the quality of the sleep. Cool. That night. That's awesome. So she'll tell me, I got a score of 60-something or 70-something <laughs> or 80-something. And I guess you want it to be as close to 100 as you can get. Yep. What we found was that when her sleep score on this device was like floating around maybe the high 60s, during the day, Tracy would feel tired. She'd lose motivation in the middle of a task or whatever. And it became very clear that, okay, this probably has something to do with the quality of your sleep because we can see the data on our phones. Cool. And then we started brainstorming just common sense solutions to getting better sleep. So we just went over to Walmart and we bought some blackout curtains. We obviously had 
curtains already in our room, but we just decided to get some that were like really effective at completely removing any and all light that could possibly enter the room. Yeah. So what we found as soon as we installed those and had a good night's sleep in like a pitch black room and like even when the sun came up in the morning, the room was very dark. Tracy woke up with a sleep score in the high 80s. Oh, wow. Yeah. Amazing. And the difference, pardon the pun, was like night and day. It was like, it's just <laughs> like our mood and just everything. It was, right. I even saw the benefits that even though I'm not tracking my sleep performance, it felt like I was better rest and that this stuff, it's small changes, right? Like we didn't have to go on some kind of special diet or vitamin regime or get like a prescription for anything. It was literally just changing the curtains in our room and improving the quality of our sleep. And we never would have even known that had we not been using that technology. Oh, cool. Yeah. So yeah, it's so interesting to me that there's all these very simple, straightforward, common sense things that people can do. Obviously won't necessarily solve a hundred percent of problems for a hundred percent of people, but it's these little often overlooked things that I like to experiment with. And, and turns out sometimes it really helps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When yeah. you brought up sleep, that's exactly, that's I know. immediately where it's my mind so important. went. We need a good night's sleep, right? Yeah. There's this thing it's called, I'm sure a lot of people have heard of it. It's sleep hygiene. Okay. And it originated in the medical field. It's obviously a medical term. They need to change the name. <laughs> sleep hygiene. <laughs> but there's some things that you can do to help you sleep. I think devices with the blue light really interfere with the ability to make melatonin. Yeah. There's a few tips and tricks. So you're not supposed to use your screens at least two hours before you go to bed. Okay. Blue light blocking lenses later in the day are supposed to work. A weighted blanket. Make sure your bedroom is a temperature that's comfortable for you. Getting out all that light. Yep. So I like what you did there. I'm yeah. going to have to get those too. Yeah. Yeah. I sleep with I, a little fan on as well too. Oh, neat. I love it. just makes me feel really Listen, like I'm on a beach. <laughs> I love a cold room. Yeah. So I crank the window open. It's freezing usually in our room and my husband doesn't really like that but I love it I like when you can see the breath when it's yeah <laughs> you can see my breath in the room yeah so there's some things you can do establishing a bedtime routine can yep. be very helpful for people the bed is for sleeping and sex so yep. they say if you're doing anything else in the bed it's probably not healthy because really you're training your brain yep. to think that you should be awake another rule is if you find yourself having a difficult time sleeping if it's more than 20 minutes get up yep. go to a dimly lit room read something really boring and when you feel tired go back to bed and you can keep doing that sometimes i recommend keeping a diary beside your bed and doing a brain dump before you go to bed so everything that's bugging you things you have to do just jot it down on a piece of paper so it's out of your brain and onto a page and you can worry about it later you can come up with mantras things like hey it's a great idea it's just not the time to think of this i'll think about this in the morning sometimes that works progressive muscle relaxation is helpful progressive muscle relaxation. How does that work? Yeah, it can work differently. It is tightening parts of the body and then relaxing them. So you tighten your toes and release, tighten your calves and release. Okay. I'm looking over at you, Tracy. It looks like you've done that before. <laughs> I have done that before in yeah. my old house when I couldn't sleep. I'm like, okay, I'm going to relax my feet and then I'm going to relax my legs. By the time I get to my head, I'm like, okay, I'm ready for yeah. So sometimes it works. I've tried that and it doesn't do anything for me. Another way you can do it is tightening all of the muscles in your body on the inhale. And then on the exhale, you just release and relax. So you can do that a few times. Some people like to imagine just a beautiful image in their head or a story that they replay. And sometimes that's helpful. Yeah. So whatever it takes, or even some people will take a bath, make sure your feet are warm. That yep. can be helpful too. Whatever works. But yeah, I agree with you. A great 
rest can make you feel great. But more than that, it's connected to physiological issues. There is a link between poor sleep and high blood pressure. Oh, wow. Maybe not as a child, but if you're older and you're not getting sleep, it can reflect in a high blood pressure reading, which is interesting. Your cortisol cycle is also on a circadian rhythm. And so if you're not getting sleep, your cortisol system is all out of whack. So that's another thing. And it's so important to keep your cortisol rhythm in check because it has so much to do with how you're responding to stress and motivation and staying energetic during the day and regulates your moods as well. There's a really interesting study. Typically, if all is well and you're getting good, nice rest, just before you get up, your cortisol level spikes and you get up and you get some nice sunshine and you carry on with your day. But they did a study and they noticed that girls, and the study was actually done examining teenage girls or emerging adults. So that's between the ages of, let's say, 16 and say 25. And they were testing their cortisol levels and they noticed that these girls who were displaying aggression didn't have a cortisol spike Mm. when they should have before waking up in the morning. So there is a link between your cortisol rhythm and mood and behavior. Very interesting. So sleep plays a role in so many aspects, behaviorally and physiologically as well. Even weight gain. They say there's a link with weight gain and uh, sleep as well. Yeah, I was going to say that. I'm no expert in this stuff, but from what I've heard, cortisol, it's a stress hormone and the evolutionary purpose was to protect us from danger. If there was a physical threat, like an animal or something, you would have the energy, a burst of energy to Mm -hmm. like run away, fight or flight, that kind of thing. But now in the society we live in today, that hormone is in our bloodstream for periods of time that's a lot longer than it was intended to be or that we evolved to be. And now it's having deleterious effects on the body, like you were mentioning, weight Mm -hmm. gain, uh, disrupting our sleep and everything else. So that, I guess that's more of a consequence in my mind of the economic system that we live in. We're constantly working super long hours just to make ends meet and that kind of thing. And we don't have the time in the day because of our jobs and that kind of thing to set aside time to cook a healthy meal, go to the gym and all this other stuff that could help you bring those hormones. It's about balance, right? And we have in our bodies an intricate system that helps keep us in balance. And so, yeah, you're right. And the stress that we're experiencing and the foods, we're not eating real food. If you look at the labels, nothing basically that we're consuming that's boxed is real. So we're polluting our body with these chemicals and not getting enough sleep and overstressed and overstimulated on social media, which is so detrimental to our cognitive process. And it's okay. Adults, it does affect us differently than children because children are developing and their brains developing. It can really impact the way that those neural pathways are being formed, stress and social media and all that stuff. So on the topic of diet and nutrition, do you think clinical psychologists are receiving adequate training in nutrition? No, I don't think anyone is, but definitely not. And what's really scary now is you open up your Facebook and everyone is apparently an expert in food food and diet and nutrition. And no, we don't. And even it's interesting because if you say you go to your family doctor and you say, oh, I have stomach issues, they'll likely say, okay, it's stress. Unless you persist, they'll just say, okay, stress. If it becomes a bit problematic, they might refer you to a GI specialist and then you'll wait a year or two for a scope. And a lot of times it's functional, meaning that there's no pathology connected. So in other words, it's not cancer. It's just somehow, they say functional, but really I think it's your nerves have gone a little haywire due to stress and just, we are wired like a machine. So if you imagine these wires getting crossed, 
crossed and unplugged and the wire on them is peeling back a bit. During our pre-show discussions, we were talking about something really fascinating that I wanted to bring up in the right. show, which was the importance of gut health. I remember mentioning to you during our pre-show discussions that I had heard somewhere that the gut has relatively recently in the field of medical science started to be seen as a body's second brain, which I didn't really quite understand the scientific nuances of what that, I've heard that expression before. Mm-hmm. I've heard things about the amount of nerve endings being down there, but what, if any, sort of like truth or wisdom is there to that sort of notion that I've come across? Right. Yeah. No. So as you mentioned before, the research is exploding with all this information about the gut, which is also referred to as the second brain. Yeah. It essentially has its own nervous system, which is part of the autonomic nervous system or the peripheral nervous system. And it interplays actually with the autonomic nervous system, which contains your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. And the central nervous system is independent. It basically is your brain and your spine. So it's on its own circuit, if you will. But your gut, the lining of your gut, and let me just preface this with saying I'm not an expert in this area by no means, but I have done some extra study for the purpose of being able to offer my clients a little bit of extra expertise when it comes to food, because I did notice that there's a link. We all know that there's a link between what you eat, the nutrients that you absorb, and its impact on the cognitive or your mind-body-soul process. So I wanted to be able to offer this because I'm more of a holistic practitioner, integrate this into how I can help people. Yeah. So your gut has, in the lining, is where all of the nerve cells live. I think there's 200 to 600 million nerve cells down there. Okay. And it's a very complex system. And it's so complex that it also has afferent and efferent nerves, which means the afferent nerves are bidirectional. So your gut can send messages to your brain. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it works independently of the central nervous system. So it doesn't need the central nervous system to know that it has to digest food. And also it's bidirectional. So the efferent nerves, right? So the brain can send messages down to the stomach as well. And it's very complex and it has an impact on so many different functions in the body. I think they're learning and so much more research needs to be done, but they have made a connection. There is a gut-brain access and they've made a connection that the enteric nervous system controls the gut microbiome and it's the microbiome that's creating or manufacturing different neurotransmitters and these are impacting the body and other nervous systems within the body. And our immune system is connected with our gut microbiome. That all has an impact and it's directly correlated with disease as well as neurogenesis. So you could see how it can support your neurodevelopment or it can support neurodegeneration. How does gut health have an impact, if any, yeah. on a day-to-day basis? But I think it's very complicated, but I think that the simplest thing they say is that most of our serotonin is manufactured in the gut. And okay. serotonin is a transmitter that is linked to happy feeling and a good mood, that good feeling. This is a real oversimplification. But essentially, if your microbiota is not working properly, because the gut microbiota is in a sense its own organ. We don't think of it like that. It's actually a very complex, these little bugs that are down there are flora. I think that's the key right there. When your flora is off, then your enteric nervous system is not working properly. So the messages going from belly to brain and brain to belly are off whack and it's setting off your neurotransmitters. And so nothing is really working as efficiently. So this impacts your immune system. This impacts mood in the way that you're not able to produce 
these neurotransmitters that impact your mood, essentially. I don't know. Does that make sense? It does. And it's like super complicated. So this is a real umbrella version. And I'm sure there are experts out there or people who are like on their fourth PhD, I'm sure, because it's it's really super complicated because it involves so many different aspects of the human body. Yeah, I'm sure you could dedicate a lifetime of study to diet and nutrition and and the relationship it has on psychological health. Yeah. Yeah. I, for myself, I can only speak from my own personal experiences of what I've been through when it comes to my food habits and how they relate to my mood and my overall health. And Mm -hmm. what I've seen seems to be the case for me. When I've had chapters in my life where I'm super stressed out from something, whether it's work or personal life or like multiple things all happening at the same time. And then that leads me to stress eat, or let's just say I don't have the hours in the day to eat a healthy meal. So I'm ordering something from like Uber Eats or something. And I'm eating this like sort of high quantities of garbage fast food. Not only do I find during those chapters of my life, I had gained weight, which is the obvious result, but I was feeling tired. I was feeling complete loss of motivation. I was feeling depressed. It was like a feedback loop. I was feeling a certain way and then I would eat to temporarily feel better and then that would make me feel even worse. And it was just, it was awful. And of course, I was probably not the only person in the world to gone through that experience. Oh, for sure. Millions of people who probably relate to what I just said. But the reason I bring that up is to contrast it with how I was feeling when I radically changed that. Okay. Sometime shortly after I moved to Sault Ste. Marie, I was experimenting with a completely different diet and lifestyle routine. Mm -hmm. It was a mix of intermittent fasting, a keto diet, and just like really regular routine time spent at the gym, all three of these things. And what I would do is I would eat only between the hours of about, I'd say 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Like it was a very short window of the day. Every day was a 21 hour fast. I'd still drink water whenever I felt like drinking water, but food was restricted to just dinner time. And when I would sit down for dinner, I would have like two big pieces of steak. I'd have some broccoli from the air fryer. I put a bunch of salt on it. I had tons of water while I was having this meal. It was satisfying. It was delicious. I didn't feel like snacking on anything else Mm -hmm. and it was filling. So I did this for a while, not even that long, maybe a week or two. So it was the fasting, it was the food. And then, yeah, so each day I would go to the gym, I'd spend an hour on the exercise. Right. I put in my headphones, I put on like phone in front of me, I play music videos and I just go, I'd get lost in my own world and I was doing the exercise bike thing. After I was done my one hour on the bike, I went over to the weight room and I did 30, 40 minutes of lifting weight. It was like the most fun 90 minutes of the day. I just, I looked forward to that every day. And I would do that sometime in the afternoon. I'd start to feel quite hungry and I needed to kill some time. So I'm working out fasted and I'm just- Burning yeah, loads of calories. Burning loads of calories. I'm yeah. having hope <laughs> staying hydrated as I'm doing this. I come home and I have that meal that I just described. And it was just incredible. I think the obvious thing that everyone is expecting me to say is I lost weight, which I did. Right. I lost a ton of weight, but that wasn't even really the point of my story. The point of my story is- You felt great. I felt great in yeah. the sense that so I was just literally, I was parking my car- going shopping one evening, just walking along. And I'm just like looking around me, taking in the sights. And I am not exaggerating this at all. I experienced like sharp vision, like I had never seen before. It was just like, I could see objects in the distance with incredible clarity and and like vibrant colors. Oh, that's amazing. To to be clear, I wasn't under the influence of any sort of drug. (laughs) (laughs) I was stone cold sober. Disclaimer. Disclaimer alert here. (laughs) But it was incredible. Like I was just this routine that I just described, those three things I'd introduced into my life. My vision was overwhelmingly better. Wow, Um, that's amazing. And my mood, my energy, like my confidence, like everything, my sleep was fantastic. I had no problems falling asleep and I woke up feeling rested. So I don't know what the reasons were that ultimately gave me that result. Maybe it was cutting out sugar. Maybe it was cutting out all those carbs. Maybe it was all the time spent at the gym. Maybe a little bit was the placebo effect where I'm like expecting this. Or maybe it's multiple things all coming together. But I was just so blown away for the first time in my life. The 
massive effect that what I would consider a very simple change to my day. Now, having described it the way that I have, I imagine a lot of people would not classify it as a simple change. But to me, I'm like, eh, okay, skip a couple of meals. No big deal. All right, go to the gym. No big deal. That's 90 minutes out of my day. There's 24 hours in a day. Just grab some steak at the grocery store, fry it up in butter at home. That doesn't take me very long. The time commitment didn't feel that complicated. So I didn't feel like I was doing much, but I felt like I was like, holy, I was just getting- Are you still doing it now? I am not. So it has a bit of a shelf life then. Yeah. Yeah, I know. So the thing that started to get to me was a few things, right? Naturally, what will happen, the longer you do something like that is you have to find a cutoff for yourself. You're like, do I want to keep dedicating this much of my- attention and my time and my day. What happens when a friend says, hey, let's do lunch. We haven't talked in a while, right? I'm like, oh no, sorry. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I, don't... I can't have fries right now. <laughs> yeah. Like if we eat exactly between six o'clock <laughs> and nine o'clock, can you meet me then? It's like, no, that doesn't work for my schedule. <laughs> I, I know. It's funny because sometimes when I was doing these crazy yeah. diets, which I don't do anymore, I'd schedule meals around that three hour yeah. span. Yeah. Can you go, let's go for pizza. I'm like, no, but we can go for chicken. Yeah. <laughs> At exactly 530. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. and yeah. I had to trying to like friends. squeeze it into yeah. your routine. I know it's so regimented. It is very regimented and it's not compatible with a busy, busy lifestyle. Life. Yeah. yeah. So you can do it for a while, but then eventually your friends are going to be like, this is weird. This is weird. <laughs> I don't get to hang out with you anymore. Or I'm sitting there eating and you're staring at me and you're having a glass of water. <laughs> or you're pulling your little container out. I used to bring my own olive oil to the restaurant yeah. because no restaurant uses olive oil yeah. and I'd sneak it out and pour it over my salad, <laughs> ask for a lemon. <laughs> you oh brought my your gosh. tea today. I brought my own tea yeah, today. You came to the studio. You brought your I own know. Tea. I know. Does that make me a weirdo? <laughs> no. As soon as I heard you say that, it reminded me of my regimented lifestyle. I was like, oh, I understand. There's a very specific formula here. I'm really picky about what it. I eat. I'm really picky. I check the Good. labels on everything. I'm really going through this phase. I don't know why I wasn't doing this years and years ago. I was always a pretty healthy eater, but I check the labels now on everything. And anything with hydrogenated oils does not make it into my home. And anything with sugar or chemicals or food color. So I have a really boring pantry, but I like to eat. I love to eat. Have you heard about the carnivore diet? I have. Yeah. yeah. Have you thought of doing that? Yes, I have. It's funny. I've that thought you about asked. doing it too. Just I'm curious because I do hear that people who do the carnivore diet, which I think was popularized by Michaela Peterson. Yeah. Yes. Who looks great, by the way. She's young too. I like to try it just to see how it affects me. Yeah. And uh, interesting. I'm a meat eater. The only thing I don't eat is pork and fish. I don't eat all fish. I'll eat salmon in particular. Wild salmon really is the only fish I eat unless my son comes home with a feed and treats me. But other than that, yeah, I'd love to do something like the carnivore diet. I wonder, can you eat fish on the carnivore diet? I don't, I'm not sure. I'm not an expert in it. But the reason I say I'm not sure is because, okay, so funnily enough, just two hours before you arrived here for this recording, I was listening to an episode of Michaela Peterson's oh, podcast okay. Okay. where she was interviewing someone, an expert in the carnivore diet. And that person she was interviewing, I believe mentioned during the episode that she doesn't eat fish. Okay. But again, it's me. So I yeah. would assume it's Interesting. perfectly fine for that diet. I'm sure. So. I'm not going to say ancestors yes or no, did. I'm just going to say I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. it's interesting. But no fiber, right? Yeah. So imagine what your gut would go through. I don't know. Yeah. I just think lot, you'd have to have lots of water. I don't really know anything about it other than you eat a lot of meat. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's all you eat is meat, right? Yeah, yeah, pretty meat much. and no veggies at all? Yeah, that's my understanding of it. And yeah. interestingly, I want to rehash that whole podcast in this episode, but from what I heard from that show, the I'm going to have to find the name of the person she interviewed. She said that a big motivating factor of that diet for the guest that was on the show 
was her own mental health, which is super relevant to your field. It wasn't a weight loss thing for her. It was she had gone through serious mental health issues Mm -hmm. that resolved after she got onto that diet. Yeah, it's interesting. What's coming up for me too is there's been talk of the ketogenic diet and how eliminating carbs, especially those nasty carbs, like not the vegetable carbs that you get in broccoli, but the nasty carbs like the sugars and the flours and burgers and burgers and bread and pastas and all that stuff. When you're on the ketogenic diet, people express feelings of clarity like they've never experienced before where they're really thinking clearly and that the brain fog is gone. And so that's really interesting to me. I notice that when I eliminate carbs. Speaking of vegetables and all that good stuff, the amount of pesticides, it's scary, scary, the level of pesticides that's on our fruit and vegetables these days. Do you wash your vegetables? Yes. And your fruit? Do you soak them at all? Sometimes I'll soak my stuff. I don't know. I'm looking over to you, Tracy. (laughs) No, we don't soak them, but we do wash them. We do. Yeah, we just give them a little rinse. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't even buy berries. The only berries that I will eat are the organic blueberries. Oh, yeah. Or if I can find frozen organic or pesticide-free berries. But yeah, I'm a little bit over the top when it comes to that stuff, but... Yeah, I know there's a lot of toxins out there that are disrupting our hormones and that has an implication on our mental health as well. Yep. So We had Carson Beauregard from the Millwork Center for Entrepreneurship on the show oh, not okay. too long ago. By the time your episode airs, I think Carson's will probably already be published by then. And he was talking about ways that people sort of grow their own Right. Food in their own greenhouse on their own property. And he does that like oh, here in the Sioux. Yeah. I'm so excited to listen to that because I just bought a garden tower. Oh, yeah. So I'm growing some lettuce and Swiss chard. And what else am I growing? A whole bunch of different greens in there. So I'm excited to dig into that crop. But yeah, I think gardening and growing your own food is the wave of the future. I think that's something we all need to start doing for sure. Yeah. We might have to at the price of lettuce. <laughs> <laughs> might become a necessity for sure in order to eat that stuff. Tiffany, one of the questions I wanted to ask you after reading your bio was how do you incorporate thanatology in supporting clients in difficult life transitions such as loss or grief? When I began working as a therapist, I was at a hospice. I started at a local hospice. Talk about going right into the pith of things, which I really enjoyed. And that's when I decided that I should take this thanatology course. So I had a better understanding and could help people a little bit better who are experiencing end of life and palliative care and their families as well. And and it's interesting because often when we think of grief, we immediately think of death and dying, which is what thanatology is in a sense. It's the study of death and dying. But really the way I use that information and that wisdom is to help people who are not only dealing with grief or death, but also people dealing with change and loss. And it could be anything, loss of a job, loss of, hey, listen, women who are going through menopause, that's a loss, a transition. So oh, people who are in accidents, right? Or experience disease. They're really experiencing a change in their identity. So they're faced with this identity crisis in a sense and helping them with acceptance and self-compassion. And I use the word forgiveness. A lot of people don't like that word, but that in a sense of really being kind to yourself and understanding that sometimes we hold on to certain attachments or the reason we do the things we do is because that's how we were raised and that's all we know. Learning to forgive yourself really for maybe feeling a certain way or not being able to get out of a certain situation.
situation or being entrenched in certain value system. And so helping people really shift their mindset so that it's not so black and white or rigid and teaching them or helping them learn to be more in the flow of things and that things are a cycle. So like an infinity symbol or a circle, everything has a cycle, like the seasons. And like our human existence, we're born and we live and then we die. And it's really helping people change that mindset. And so they're less likely to want to resist things and move more into a place where they're accepting things for as they are, for as they truly are, when and being comfortable with that. When you're working with patients who are nearing end of life, what, to the extent that you have, what sort of regrets do you find that people tend to have? So it's been a while since I've worked at Arch, but when I was there, what I noticed was that they didn't care and this is going to sound very cliche, but it's true. And I think it's important to remember this, but they're not worried about how much money they made or what they didn't make or clothes that they had, the car that they drove, but really their relationships and the relationships that they'd fostered and the people that they lost who meant something to them. One of the things that would happen often with these sort of magical things where clients near death would report seeing loved ones who had passed standing at the end of their bed. It was amazing. They would actually report to us, the employees, that they saw their loved one standing there. Wow. Like really fascinating stuff. And who are we to say that's silly? But that happened often. And so that was pretty cool in a way. So the regrets, I don't know if there were so much regrets. A few clients that I worked with, there were some regrets, but mostly I'd have to say that people were more resting in gratitude for their friends and family who had been there. And in particular, the ones that were supporting them near end of life. Really, you see a lot of conflict with the family members, that more so. That was, we had to manage that as well. There was a lot of regret with family members because there's lots of family conflict. And that kind of situation puts stress on family members. And so I would see the regret more when working with the family members of someone who is near death. Interesting. Yeah. The family members. Actually, I spoke about a story relevant to this mm-hmm. in an earlier episode. It was the episode where I interviewed Grace Swain, where I talked about a friend of mine who had passed away. And I'm not going to go into that whole story all over again. If anyone right. who's curious to hear about it can go back to that episode. And right. Yeah. I, I was thinking about that actually when you were mentioning the fact that some of your patients had reported seeing people they had known who mm-hmm. passed away. They reported seeing them there as they themselves were arriving at the end of their own lives. Right. That's definitely something that made me remember experiences that I've been through. But like I said, I've already talked about all that stuff. <laughs> it's such a cool experience, but it's a really interesting time to be a part of someone's life at that moment. And yeah. I used to get a lot of people say, oh my gosh, how could you work at a hospice or that must have been so stressful on you. And really it was a beautiful experience. I think mainly because the expectation in terms of this hospice. In some hospices in the States, they'll go in, but some leave. Whereas the one here locally, it's an end of life facility, right? So we know the expectation is that we're companioning them to end of life. And so that's the role. It would be much different if there was a 75% chance that they'd walk away and then you're disappointed, right? Or devastated of that 25% that doesn't, but pretty much the 99% in this case, right? So being able to be part of someone's end of life is a beautiful experience, really. And then helping the families manage it is also a very interesting process. And as I mentioned, that's when you get into the really interesting work because grief and managing grief is such a subjective experience. And the one thing, I don't specifically tell my clients this, it underpins essentially how I approach grief and grieving with clients. The one thing that humans have experience with 
with is death. We've all experienced death since the dawn of time and we're hardwired to deal with it. Even though it doesn't feel like it at the time, it's something that is part of our human makeup in a sense. But it's interesting how people navigate the grieving experience differently and grief doesn't wear a watch. There's no rule book and it can become complicated. So that's where you see the regrets, right? A lot of that. I've watched friends deal with grief, loss of a loved one, loss of a family member and just completely lose themselves in that oh, yeah. process. Now, again, like everybody grieves differently. Everybody operates on different yeah. timelines. Yeah. Sometimes people will jump between the stages of grief in a way that's not really fluid or predictable. Sometimes that process might take years and years. Mm -hmm. There's the pain of losing that person who passed away. Then there's the additional pain of the bad choices that the grieving family member made when they were dealing with that pain. It's almost like the trauma is twofold. It's traumatic to lose someone. And then it's traumatic to watch the family members that are left behind fall so far. Yeah, I know it's a really difficult time in a person's life to to navigate that. And uh, sometimes the cause of death has an impact on how one processes or grieves. If it's traumatic, chances are the grieving is more traumatic as well. Yeah. If it's expected, it doesn't make it easier, but it does change the way that you grieve. And of course, it depends when it lands on you, on the griever, right? You can experience a grief one day. The same grief could be experienced at a different time and you're going to process it differently based on your own reality at the time. It's very interesting. So saying on the first year, basically, because there's the first, like the birthday and the Christmas and the holidays. And, you know, so those are always more intense and it can feel like real depression, real anxiety. So someone who's never had depression or anxiety might be experiencing this and then after six months and say, what's wrong with me? I think I'm depressed. You're grieving, right? And sleep disruption, like all those things, it can be just grief. Mind you, if it goes beyond that year and a half, then it could be something more or different, right? Or if they're still having flashbacks after that time, it could be something. It gets complicated or complex. And there's various ways that you can approach the grieving process. The body's an amazing thing. And the brain, it protects you and it gives you what you can handle, I think, most of the time when you can handle it. But it doesn't when it's complicated, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It's like trauma. A lot of people talk about things being suppressed or they don't remember. And I just think it's the mind's way of just protecting you. Because otherwise it would just be way too much to handle emotionally, psychologically, physiologically. Oh, for sure. You often hear people say, I wasn't even really able to process it for a couple of decades. It's because your brain was trying to protect you. There's long chapters of my childhood that I just don't even remember. That I have theories about why I don't remember, likely because of the trauma. But I have like images here and there of probably things that I experienced in childhood. Mm -hmm. But if someone ever asked me to explain what each year of growing up was like or what each grade in grade school was like, I'd have trouble doing that. It would be tough for me to really remember all of it. And again, as we age, I guess a lot of people, it's natural to start forgetting stuff that's further and further in the past. But for me, it's like the time blocks are like, there's just this empty spaces for long periods on the calendar that seem strange. And then for a long time, I thought that everyone was just like this, that this was just normal. (laughs) But apparently the longer I've lived and the more people I've met, apparently people have like abilities to recall their childhood in a way that's a lot more clear and and 
effective than I can. So I was like, oh, that is a red flag for me. Interesting. <laughs> but again, do I really want to spend the emotional energy to go down that rabbit hole? It's interesting that we're talking about this because this yeah. totally relates to art therapy and nonverbal types of therapies and how the brain processes memories yeah. and how we encode experiences and memories because usually traumatic memories are encoded differently in our brain. They're not encoded with a beginning, middle, and end. They're fragmented and they're stored in different parts of our brain that are more connected to our body senses. And that's likely for survival. So you don't have to really think about it. Your brain will pick up on things that it deems as dangerous. Yeah. And that's why art therapy is so fantastic because it can really tap into unconscious and some of that somatic stuff okay. that comes out. And as you mentioned, you don't recall. So how are you going to be able to verbalize that? But interesting things about art therapy too. It's such a cool process and it can be done differently or performed differently by therapists. And one of my clinical supervisors used to say, we're not just making dolls here. This is serious stuff <laughs> because there's a lot of people out there doing art, which is great in therapy. I think it's a wonderful thing, but art therapy is a protected term. You typically have to have a postmaster certification. Wow, It's pretty in-depth learning because art, it's usually a very subconscious or unconscious process. A lot comes out that one might not be consciously aware of. So in processing it, it takes a lot of experience and just know-how <laughs> to be able to process that effectively so you're not overwhelming your patient, re-traumatizing your client, flooding your client. Do you want to be able to titrate that and do it safely? Yeah, it's amazing. This one story speaks volumes when thinking about art therapy and interpreting or assessing art. There's a story about a teacher who had a classroom and every morning she would send around her box of colored crayons around the classroom. And they do their little drawing in the morning and then they put them in a pile and the teacher would go through them and oh, it was lovely when the kids would have all sorts of lovely drawings with mom and dad and sons and flowers and little houses. And she noticed this one little boy always had drawings that were done in black pencil crayon. And she noticed this was a bit of a pattern and she became concerned. She spoke with the principal and she said, listen, I think there's something going on here. <laughs> I think there might be some abuse going on. And so they called the parents in and they called the little boy in the room and they brought out the drawings and they said, listen, we're really concerned because all the other kids are drawing and they're making these beautiful drawings and yours is always in black. What's wrong? What's going on? <laughs> and he said, by the time the box gets to me, the only pencil crayon that's left is black. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes a dog really is just a dog. So whenever I do art therapy, my approach is I don't assume anything. Sometimes I see a lot of symbolism and I could make some wild assumptions, but I really let it unfold naturally. I did a community art therapy group and I worked with different people from the community. And there was this lovely lady and she was a schizophrenic and she was coming to the group. Lovely, lovely. And she did the most incredible paintings. Just amazing. And she would always say, I just want to be Emily Carr. I just want to be Emily Carr. Emily Carr is a famous Canadian artist. And I just thought that was so intriguing that she wanted to be Emily Carr. And she had such joy when she was doing her art. And at the end of this 10-week art therapy group, I interviewed each person individually and I put up all of their art from the first week to the 10th week and had them look and see if they noticed themes or what insight they gleaned from their experience. And I was so anxious to interview this woman because I thought, I want to know. I just want to know what's going on, what is happening because her work was so fascinating to me. And uh, so I got her in the room, I put up all the images and I said, so, you know, what do you see? What's going on? And I just see pictures and yeah, on that day, I just wanted to draw something for my dog, Bruno. And uh, yeah, so that was it. She was there in the moment, just drawing whatever was coming up 
for her at that time. And I was looking for like the story behind every image and there just wasn't. She just enjoyed being there and doing whatever came to her in the moment. And I realized at that time that sometimes what the meaning that I think it has isn't the same as what the person doing the art is experiencing. So I really have to be careful about imposing my own assessment or judgment or experience onto that person. And that's one of the dangers when you're working with people in art therapy. There's that tendency to say, hey, you must be thinking this way because your sunshine is located on the left side as opposed to the right side of the paper. So it's just interesting. It's a different approach. Mind you, some people like when you tell them what it is. They want to hear, <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah. People are always looking for meaning, right? Yeah. But my approach is to have them tell me what the meaning is. Yeah. Tracy likes to make little crochet dolls or whatever. Right? I do, yeah. Oh, do you? Yeah. So you do like to make dolls, yeah. You've made some Harry Potter characters. Yes. Oh, that's cool. For my sister, she loves Harry Potter. So for her birthday and Christmas, I made her a Harry Potter and then I made her a Dobby. Oh, a cool. closet elf, I yeah. think it's called. Oh my House gosh, elf? I love it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's a really wonderful ability to have. Oh, I picked it up really quickly. I started in May and by June or July, I think I was making those animals. Oh my gosh, that's yeah. amazing. And it's so therapeutic. Do you find you're so in the moment? Yep. I know it's great for focus and attention. The whole yeah. world could fall away. You're just like right with that stitch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that is cool. And that's the thing with art as therapy too. There's therapeutic benefits in actually doing the art. So when you're crocheting or knitting or drawing, because you're very focused on what you're doing. Or there's art as therapy. So using the art to help process difficult emotions and integrate traumatic experiences. Gotcha. So, yeah, it's interesting. Okay. Tiffany, one of the questions I had on my mind, and I imagine some of our viewers are wondering as well, I mentioned when I was reading your bio out into the mic that you are currently pursuing your doctorate of clinical psychology. Yes. One of the things I wanted to know was in your journey of pursuing this doctorate, what sort of challenges have you encountered in that process? What sort of challenges and insights have you encountered in that process? Challenges and insights. Did I tell you the story about how I came to take my doctorate? No. It's a cool story. I like this story. I think I mentioned earlier that I had my daughter when I was relatively young. I was 21. And I had different things that I wanted to do, and different career paths that I wanted to embark upon. But I had my daughter, and so that sort of changed things for me. I had to recalculate my life path, basically. And I remember at one point, I put together a bucket list, and it somehow ended up in a box. So there was one point where I had a life transition. My whole life was in this shoebox. And I remember I was moving, and I opened my closet door, and there was this little shoebox, and I opened it, and it had a few pictures of my childhood, a few mementos, and this bucket list. And on the bucket list was, I think there were four things, and one of them was, I want to get my doctorate in clinical psychology. Okay. So I tucked it away, and I thought, this isn't going to happen anytime soon. At that point, I don't even think I had my bachelor's. So it was just something that I tucked away. And I consider myself the librarian of my family. I have everything. I keep things tucked away, mementos, and I have all of my dad's things. I have a little booklet he had when he was a child. I have one of his notebooks from grade eight. So I'm the keeper of things in the family. So of course, this was one of the things that I kept for myself and I have it still in my box of mementos. I tucked it away for a good, I don't know, 25, 30 years 
hours. So when I decided to embark upon my doctorate, I was fortunate because I had all of the qualifications to apply. And I thought this was interesting because when I set out to do my master's, I didn't intend on doing my doctorate. So I thought it really speaks to everywhere you are today is just exactly where you need to be. And it's like every dot is connected. It led me to this path. And then I thought back on this little bucket list that I created when I was 21 single mom. That was a far reaching goal for me at that point. So that also just speaks to, hey, follow your dream and dream big because you just never know when that opportunity is going to happen or when you're going to manifest that. Some of the insights are that the more you learn, the less you know. I've read so much literature. I have so much information in my brain and some experience, but there's so much out there to learn. You really recognize how much you don't know. And so the information you're willing to provide is very, you want to discern that. And, and that's why I'm always amazed when there's people who just claim to be experts. I'm thrilled by that. I'm like, wow, good on you. Because I wish I could have that confidence. I'm an expert in this. <laughs> it's just been challenging to try and fit it in and do everything and have a life. My weeks and my months revolve around this completion. And I'm moving into my dissertation phase, which is a whole different challenge. Because when I first decided to do this, I thought, oh, I know exactly what I'm going to do for my dissertation. I know exactly. And it's a bit more complicated than that. And so I'm really looking forward to working with my team when I get to that point. I'm a few months away from entering that phase. And I think I know what I want to do. I just, I haven't formulated the question yet. Originally, I'm not a research girl. The whole quantifying and stats terrifies me, but they have great software out now. They basically does all the work for you. And originally I thought I'm going to stick with a qualitative study because that's where I feel safest. But I think I'm going to do a mixed methods research study and I'm going to inquire incorporate Buddhist psychology with art therapy and somehow make that work. Wish me luck. (laughs) It sounds really interesting. So I'm still working on the question. I'm still going through the research and looking for the gaps and, and trying to link the two. One of my teachers said a good dissertation is a done dissertation. <laughs> so don't get too caught up. One of the things I wanted to do, I think, and we talked about death and dying and that sort of thing. One of the great research questions or things that I'd love to do if I had more time and knowledge and was more of a research person is rooted in what happens to someone when they're dying and that experience. One of the things I noticed when I worked at the hospice was that our mandate was to create an environment medically that that's free of suffering for people. They're highly medicated because we want to have them in comfort, right? So they're not experiencing too much pain and they're in a beautiful environment and they're being supported completely. And I think it's a beautiful model. And I think most of the time it works really well for most people. But I noticed, and this is my own observation, right? This isn't anything that I've read. There's no theories on this. But one thing I noticed was that some patients would hang on for a lot longer than one would anticipate in essentially a vegetative state, comatose, just out of it due to meds. And I wondered if the lack of being able to feel pain prolonged the process. Interesting. And I thought, I wonder if they felt pain, if the body would say, you know what, it's time to go. So I really struggled with that. And I thought, I wonder if for some clients or some patients that it actually prolongs the process. But of course, the patient wouldn't know they're comatose, but you really see it with the family because these families would come in seven in the morning and they'd be there all day. And in the first few weeks, they're preparing for this person to transition. And if that person hangs on, 
on longer than one would anticipate. It becomes months of your family coming in, sitting at their bedside with the patient. So that was just a question I had. And if there was a way, I think maybe there could be a way to do it qualitatively by maybe interviewing hospice staff on their observations. But I don't know. That's just a question I had. And I wondered if there was a different way maybe, or if there's more of a way that we could do that's more balanced. I don't know. I think the model's beautiful. But that was the one thing that I struggled with a little bit when I worked there. You mentioned something about Buddhist teachings. Yes. You're explaining. So I've read The Art of Happiness by the Dalai Lama. Uh It was a fantastic book. It was a while ago that I've read it. So I'd like to reread it at some point. Mm -hmm. But immediately when you mentioned that, my mind went to that book. And I also have listened quite a bit to the audio recordings of Alan Watts. Oh, he's amazing, isn't yeah. he? Yeah, he really is. What a guru. Wait, what a guru, yeah. 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 And, I was and such charisma. And yeah. that the accent just <laughs> <Yeah>. takes you away. <laughs> I was curious to know how and to what extent the Buddhist teachings have influenced your academic journey and your development of your understanding of mental health and well-being. Okay, that's a great question. And it's so complex. It started in a swimming pool with my mother Okay, in around 2016. And my mom was this really naturally raw, intelligent person. I'm sure her IQ scores would have been way up there. She's really intelligent and really well-read and interesting. She's a really interesting lady. And as I mentioned earlier, she got me into yoga and meditation and all these different things that I never would have been exposed to as a child, music, etc. And we were in Florida and we were in a pool and we were talking about life and philosophies and all that sort of stuff. And she said, you know what, Tiffany, you should be a Buddhist. You sound like a Buddhist. And I said, oh, what is that? (laughs) I had a general idea, of course, but she said that you should read up on it and do some more research because a lot of the things you talk about are aligned with some of the philosophies that I've read about that are connected to some Buddhist thought. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Maybe I'll look into that. So I started to, that was in 2016. So slowly over the last six or seven years, I've been taking courses and studying that in a nutshell it's a different way of perceiving reality i think oh, absolutely yeah. yeah and one of the big differences is acceptance of reality so seeing things without delusion and acceptance of human suffering or suffering in general and being in the flow of things rather than resisting i mean i wish i could speak to it like alan watts it'd blow you away it, there's so many uh, layers to it But it is a bit of a different way of thinking. So the way I would approach it too in terms of psychology is once they're rooted in the suffering, that resistance increases suffering. And so becoming more aware of how we might increase suffering can help to diminish suffering in a sense. Yeah, my understanding, my very novice understanding of the Buddhist teachings on suffering and attachment is that suffering often comes from our attachments to the worldly things. Mm -hmm. If you are overly attached to your work and then you fall into workaholism and then if something goes wrong in your career your whole world is falling apart and you're neglecting your body you're neglecting your family you're neglecting everything else and that's just the example of work let's say you're maybe too attached to a toxic relationship that you can't escape because Mm -hmm. you can't bring yourself to rid yourself of that attachment and you're stuck in a state of suffering i really do agree strongly with a lot of those teachings that peace and happiness is found in a place where you are free of attachments but it's so difficult to actually where i found in my personal experience i found it quite difficult to actually apply those principles on a day-to-day basis where as human beings we are if you want to say designed 
to or evolved to. That's a subtle distinction, but we are designed to, we're evolved to bond, right? Oh, for sure. Go ahead. That's one of the connection is a key sure. uh, yeah. we evolved process. Other. Yeah. We, we bond with like animals. We bond with routine. It could be like a food or something like let's say a particular dish that you used to eat growing up as a kid have that dish as an adult and it brings back all these memories. We just bond with all kinds of things. It's strange to me and it's fascinating to me that what we're designed to do is to bond and mm-hmm. what helps and contributes to our mental well-being is healthy attachments to things. But at the same time, it's those attachments and it's those bondings that also are the source of our suffering. Maybe it's not the bond itself or the attachment itself. Maybe it's when the attachment is taken to a degree that it shouldn't be. Right. Maybe there's a healthy way to attach yourself to something while at the same time imposing reasonable limits on how much you're willing to be attached to it. Yeah. The brain and the mind has a predictive potency like that added neurons that fire together, wire together. There's so much implication there because we're talking about dopamine and the reward system and why we do things. And we're constantly trying to feed those reward pathways in our brain and get that dopamine spike. A lot of the attachment comes to our diluted attachment to the meaning of things or how we've formulated meaning around people, places, and things. It's at an unconscious level that we process our current experience it's through our experiences, our past experiences. And that's why they say being mindful can be helpful because you're truly in the present moment and you're processing information without the veil or without preconceived notions. So you can actually process and think about it in a way that's going to help you in the moment. So you're right. We have these attachments like love, compassion. These are all evolved characteristics that we have and we need that for sure. But you're right. It's a fine line, right? I mean, it's such a uh, big topic. So if you take the attachment to unhealthy thinking patterns, I think is the biggest thing that can increase suffering because in a a lot of like, they say like 90% of what we think, say, do, behave is unconscious and it's rooted in what we've learned and how we've processed that. And a lot of that is also informed by our beliefs and value system, our memories, our past experiences. And so there's a lot of work that goes into designing how we think in the present moment. There's a lot of room for, you get to a certain point where you realize, oh, you know what? The way that I'm thinking right now is probably not the best thing. It might have helped me when I was five to run away or to avoid pain, but it's not serving me any longer. I know Gabor talks about that a lot and just coming to the point where you realize that that thinking might have helped me when I was a little kid and I needed to be that way. But as an adult, it's actually harming me. You're referring to Gabor Mate. I'm referring to Gabor yeah, Mate, yeah. yeah. When well, you said Gabor, because some of our audience might not know who Gabor Oh, is. yeah. Apologize. He's the, <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> yeah, everybody knows Gabor. Yeah. Mate. <laughs> yeah, our most famous Canadian. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely I mean, one of them, yeah. Yeah, definitely one of them. He has a really interesting perspective on trauma and healing, and I think it resonates with a lot of people, especially in the addiction community. He talks about the link between trauma and addiction. That the only thing is, one could say or speculate that every single human alive has experienced trauma. Yeah, I've heard that before. Of course. Yeah. We've all experienced trauma, and you could experience a devastating trauma and not become an alcoholic. Whereas somebody else could experience the same type of trauma and that could lead them to addictions, let's say, as a child. So it's really interesting. There's a lot of factors at play. There's genetic vulnerability. There's the resiliency that you've acquired through the care you've received as a child. Yeah, there's a lot of factors that play into that. Yeah, Johan Hari talks about the link between... 
I like him. Yeah. yeah. He's great. I actually had the pleasure of meeting him several years ago, actually, at the TED conference in Banff, Alberta. Oh, yeah. 2016. Yeah. Yeah. Right he's on. a cool guy. Yeah. Really down to earth. He talks about in his TED talk. I said this on a previous episode of the podcast. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to jump into it again, but there's this link between human connection yeah. and addiction where if you are, let's say, I guess, lacking in human connection, you're more likely to try to bond with something else instead, right. whether it's like alcohol or drugs or pornography or whatever. It's trying to satisfy that need to connect, which is right. supposed to be from another human being. But in the absence of that, it'll find an alternative, it being the I, brain. I think that was rooted in that rat study, right? That, yeah. yeah. Yes, the, ra- yeah, the, the rat, rat study. study. Yeah. The rat, good old rats. Rat Think, what would we do without <laughs> rat park? What would we do without rats? <laughs> Thank God they're not experimenting on people yeah. today. They have experimented on people in the past. But yeah, I know it's fascinating. And Paul Gilbert, the godfather of compassion therapy, has done some really interesting work in evolutionary psychology and the evolution of compassion okay. and how that's helped us survive over the years. Having compassion has enabled us to form healthy connections with people in a group. And the healthier the connection in a group, the better chance you have at surviving the elements or warding off the danger. It's interesting. His work is great. That was actually going to be one of my questions I had on this list that I was going to ask you about that year-long intensive training that you did regarding compassion. I guess it's a two-part question, really. What was that year-long training experience like, and how does it inform your day-to-day practice with the patients that you work with? Yeah, you know what? It was a few years ago. I think I did it in 2018, and it was really interesting. So essentially looking at compassion in a different way and studying neuroscience of compassion and how it's evolved for us. But you know how I apply it now is there's a lot of merit, I think, that goes into approaching people and people who are struggling with mental health issues, approaching that with a different insight and leaning into a more of a compassionate approach to dealing with that and understanding compassion. So compassion versus self-compassion, right? So having teaching and using self-compassion with clients and I think that goes a long way. Okay. So people can be more forgiving of themselves and others if they can accept their own stuff and have self-compassion. Kristen Neff is another one of those. She's done a lot of work on self-compassion and she talks about self-compassion as having three core components, kindness, mindfulness, and common humanity. Interesting. Yeah. So understanding that we all suffer and that brings the connection. So we're all in this together kind of thing. Kindness is so important because you really have to take a kind approach to yourself in order to see the world in a soft way. And then the mindfulness really is a big piece because that allows you to be in a space where you can rest, learn, grow differently. You can't really see things objectively unless you're being mindful, right? So that critical self-reflection that I tell my clients to do, really that has to be in a very mindful space where you're sitting back and you're being more of that neutral observer and you're looking at things and being really kind when you self-observe, not being too hard on yourself and giving yourself an opportunity to problem solve and give yourself a chance to grow into something differently. We're so wired to be the same and do the same and talk the same and really takes a conscious effort to shift and to change that. And it can be difficult. Self-compassion is a good way to do that. Self-compassion. Self-compassion. It's not something that I've been good at in my life. (laughs) I spent a long time, especially in my 20s, just being really self-critical, being really unfair just to myself, just like looking at my own decisions and engaging in a lot of really aggressive, negative self-talk about my own life choices. And really, honestly, look, what was it for? Like, what did I gain from treating myself that way? 
if, you know, everyone, every human being eventually is going to make decisions that you look back on and you're like, I guess I shouldn't have done that. But there's not a lot of profit in spending years punishing yourself about that. Learn yeah. the lesson. Don't do it again. Make amends, that kind of thing, and so, just do better. So know? easy to say, right? Yeah. <laughs> so easy to say. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, it's so easy to say. And I think that also speaks to the way that our brain is yeah. constructed. Because the reason we judge is so that we know that the fruit on that poison tree is inedible. So we're constantly judging our surroundings so we know what's safe and what's not safe and what's doable and what's not doable. If we didn't do that and we didn't have our anxiety system, we'd be falling off cliffs and getting hit by cars. And <laughs> so, right. So we need some sort of gauge to help us put things in perspective or navigate our surroundings. But that's what our brain does. And so it's natural to be self-critical and judge yourself because you're trying to put yourself in perspective in the world. And that's, I think, a learning process. I think if any human tells you that they're not judging themselves, I think think they'd have to maybe think about that again. There's a natural tendency to be self-critical and judgmental about self and others. That's how our brain thinks. But I think the danger is the lack of balance again, where you're too in that space where you see the world just through self-judgment or judgment of others. So your reality is off, you're skewed a bit. And then there's some people who just don't care at all and they're totally on the other end of the spectrum. So it's trying to put things into a healthy perspective. And that critical self-reflection is a really great way to balance that because the most important thing is that you want to be able to glean insight from your experiences so you can take that into your next experience, right? So you can grow into it. We're not perfect. Perfection is for circles. <laughs> That's what I always say. Hey, perfection is for circles. We're not circles. We're like these complicated puzzle pieces. Yeah. yeah. Humans with all this, we're like a matrix. Yeah. So we're constantly learning and growing and changing and evolving and hopefully into healthier ways. I think you get to a point where you realize that, hey, this pattern of thinking, this negativity, this judgment, it's not healthy. It's not serving me. And it might have helped me when I had to make a really tough decision when I was 18. But right now it's just becoming an obstacle. Tiffany, it sounds like the Soul Compass, your practice, seems like a really great resource for the community here in Sault Ste. Marie. So I had a question about your practice, about your clinical practice. What's the outlook for your practice and your company? What's like the future plans and the future goals for growth, both in terms of your personal growth as a therapist, as well as the Soul Compass and helping the local community here in Sault Ste. Marie. Yeah, thanks. When I first opened my office, I have two smaller offices and a big studio. And I really, I thought I'm going to do yoga and meditation and some talk therapy and maybe have a little small area for some play and art. But what I noticed was that because of the art and play therapy, I was attracting a lot of younger clients. And I love working with children anyway. So I think naturally. I really connect well with children and they connect with me and it works really well. And it was during the pandemic too. So the yoga thing just didn't go as anticipated, which is fine. So I decided to move my art and play into my big space. So now my art and play is in half of my yoga studio or my movement studio. And it works really well because I have a section where I have my sand tray, I've got puppets, I've got my dollhouse and my art center in one half of the room, which would be about the size of this. So it's a nice space. And then the okay. other half I use for meditation, some movement and drumming. I have a woman coming in on Sundays 
space doing a drumming group, a hand drumming group. It serves as that dual space. And then I have my office, which is my talk space office. And for adults, I have a table where we might do some, I don't call it art therapy because art therapy is a very different modality than what I'd be doing here. But I always have paper and pen. We're all, I'm always using a creative process in whatever I do. If we had to do art therapy, we'd move out into the bigger space. Now, where do I see me going? I never would have thought that I'd have increased my play in art space. And part of me loves working with kids. But I think as I grow and move into the profession, I really see myself doing more teaching maybe and hanging a shingle where I do Buddhist psychology. And that's it. That sounds exciting. For me, it's not about the money. It's not about how many clients I get. It's especially in this field, at this age, my age in this field, you really have to love what you do because it can be very stressful and you're not doing this for the money. I'll tell you that. I want to do something that I really love. So that with probably some art therapy, somehow integrate that along the way. So talk to me in a few years because I'll probably be still on my hands and knees working with kids. That's what happens. I end up on the floor playing with all this stuff, but I'm really open to any Anything. And I don't have anything set in my mind because I like to be open to possibility and it'll be interesting to see where it takes me. The only concrete thing I could say is I do envision myself with an office with lots of plants and a few Buddhas <laughs> <laughs> and a little fireplace in the corner. But I'm very hands-on and I can't see myself not being more of a real hands-on sort of practitioner. So we'll see. We'll see where it takes me. Maybe doing more meditation and maybe some trainings in that area to be announced. More to come there. That'll be the next. Perhaps educating the public through social media platforms. Yeah. You're obviously providing a long form knowledge sharing session through this episode. Yeah. The only thing is I'm like 1980s when it comes to technology. (laughs) (laughs) I used to walk into my yoga classes with literally a boom box on my shoulder. (laughs) And then I'd always have to use the disclaimer that they'd be like, where's your iPod or your, I'm like, I don't know how to work one. I have no (laughs) idea. And then I graduated to CDs, which was a good thing, but a lot of places don't have the capability for a CD. So I would bring in my CD player. I graduated to that and that was just a few years ago. I know I finally am connecting to Bluetooth and I'm doing it right now, but we'll bring you into this decade. (laughs) Yeah, I need, when it comes to technology, I mean, it is such a great platform if you know what you're doing for sure. Oh yeah. Most people are getting all their content (laughs) off social media, like the TikTok and Instagram reels. I know I need to get with it. and all that. I know. I really need to get with the program that way. People are going to see you now. Yeah. I might have to call you Tracy. (laughs) (laughs) Your new business. I'm serious. (laughs) I'm doing three meditative mindful art events. May 15th, it's completely booked. June 12th and July 10th at the Art Hub on Spring. So it's right across from Stones on Queen Street, right at the corner. 2023, Um, in case anyone's listening. 2023. Many years from now and they find this episode. (laughs) And they show up. I won't be there. (laughs) Unless they do some sort of time, you know. Uh, What website? Quantum leaping. (laughs) What should they find that on? You know what? They'd have to go on the Art Hub portal. Let me just see. I just have at Art Hub at Spring. Okay. Do you have a website yourself? I do. uh, Thesoulcompass.com. There you go. Thesoulcompass.com. You could even post your upcoming events on that website if you haven't already. Yeah. I haven't gotten there yet, but I I will. (laughs) I'm a Facebook girl and I'm old school. So yeah, I'm doing those three events. We're just seeing how they go and I'm picking a theme for each event. And I think the theme for me is softening rough edges. So we're going to do an art activity and integrate metaphor of the rough edges as the obstacles and the fears, all our struggles that we have in life. And gotcha. then a part of that is bringing some comfort, joy, and a little bit of softening to the rough edges. 
gotcha. yeah. So I'm not going to give all of it away, but you got to go to the of, event to find out. Yeah, <laughs> that's the idea behind it, and okay. also trying to make the art so that it looks good. Yeah, because a lot of the stuff you do in art therapy isn't stuff you want to hang on your wall. It's very process yeah. type of art. You know, and then I'm going to be introducing the concept of dialectical behavioral therapy in it, so that it has a little bit of therapy to it, but it's not too heavy on that. It's talking about ways that people can manage stressors essentially through this approach. Gotcha. Yeah. I had this other question. Sure. Uh, Can you potentially explain the benefits of contemplative and mindfulness-based psychology and how they differ from more traditional therapy approaches? Sure. The contemplative and the mindfulness type of approach is more accepting of your circumstance and being more in the flow in your processing. A lot of the cognitive behavioral therapy is notice and then reframe. Okay. So if you're having a negative thought, you notice the thought and then you want to reframe that immediately. Immediately. But the mindfulness approach is to say, notice the thought and then maybe sit with the discomfort. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And then you recognize and realize that negative thought or that painful thought is not going to kill you. It's like that saying when you're going through hell, just keep on going. You don't want to hang out there. You don't want to unpack and live there too long, but you do need to go through it to get to the other side. So it's a way to approach life and experiences in a way that allows you to feel a full range of emotions and be okay with it. You're feeling guilty about something, that's okay. Let's explore that and let's sit with that and what's coming up for you. Where do you feel it in your body? Let's go in and release the tension there and what's happening, what memories are arising and be okay with that. It's like that saying, you just got to let it go. You hear that a lot, right? Just let it go. Easier said than done. (laughs) But I always say you can't let anything go because it's happened to you. Yeah. So how are you going to let that go? You're just disenfranchising yourself, really letting things be. And it just changes the perspective of everything because I think when you do let things go, when I'm speaking loosely here, but it does deny you of that experience, even if it's a negative one. And you need to experience everything in order to be who you are and be okay with who you are. I prefer the term, let it be. Acknowledge, label, and let it be. It's a strategy that I use a lot. Do you know what this reminds me of, actually? There's this person, I forget his name, Ryan Holiday. Okay. He has this channel on TikTok called The Daily Stoic. So each day he explains a concept from like the writings of Marcus Aurelius or one of the others. Right. And they have some great stuff too. Oh, yeah. I and know. His content has reached a lot of people. And I think he's even been on like Joe Rogan and stuff. Right. I found so much benefit from learning about stuff from the Daily Stoic. And I think Ryan Holiday is also an author now as well. So he wrote a book. But just what we're talking about, about things like letting it be, having things happen in your life, sitting with the discomfort. Right. Like it is what it is it is what it is and a like very like stoic sort of way of looking at the world sure and turning towards the dragon right yeah. rather than being in fear living in fear all the time yeah so turning towards that and that also builds resilience which is so important we need to remember that we need to continue to build that resilience emotionally physically and that sort of is a way to grow it's like going to the gym and pumping weights yeah. right it's just you're doing it mentally so there's this great little intro to an article that i read years ago we talk about environment versus genes and the story goes that darwin and freud walk into a bar and there's two alcoholic mice sitting there alcoholic mom with her son and they're sipping on gin from little thimbles and the mother looks up and she says hey geniuses how did my son get into this sorry state and darwin says bad genes and freud says bad mothering so (laughs) i love that story because it really speaks to the influence of 
our environment and that connection that we talked about. And the vulnerability, we're all constructed with genetic vulnerability, right? Sometimes one influence is stronger than the other, but I think they both have an influence on who you are. Sounds like a little bit of intergenerational trauma. Yes, yeah, Yeah. for sure. That's where it came up with the resilience because the whole idea is that we're so used to thinking about how we inherit trauma. But it's important to remember that we also inherit resilience. That's true. Yes, and that's bingo. That's so important. We we forget that. (laughs) I I don't think anyone has ever explained that to me in my life. We inherit resilience. Yes, we inherit resilience. Just think of it. Imagine what your ancestors had to endure to get you here sitting at this table. And we talked a little bit off mic about our own personal experiences. And I know that we won't get into it, but both our lineages are rooted in some pretty heavy duty stuff. Oh, right? for sure. Unquestionably, so, yeah. So I picture my ancestors walking through the Sahara and hey, here I am. Yeah. And I think you should always thank your ancestors. I talked about it on a previous yeah. episode actually about how my parents, I can't speak to my grandparents and my great grandparents because I didn't know them and I don't really know the lineage very well, but I can speak to the experiences that my parents had prior to immigrating to Canada. I'm born and raised here, but they came here in the early 70s. Right. A big part of the reason they immigrated to Canada is because there was a civil war going on in their home country when they were quite young, when they were in like their late teens, early 20s. And it was unquestionably, they don't talk about it much really, but it was unquestionably a traumatizing experience for them. My dad told me a story once about how he was with some of his brothers and sisters in his home country in like an office building. And there was like a gunfight that was going on at Mm -hmm. street level. And he figured he was probably safe considering that the office building was several floors up. If there's people out at street level shooting at each other, they're probably pointing their guns at street level. He's standing by a window and he's like looking down into the street to see what's going on out there. Not the smartest decision, but he's doing this. And then he goes to like check on his sister or something like that. He walks away from the window, leaves that room he was standing in, in, goes into a hallway, goes into a different room, talks to his sister for a little while, checks on her. She said she wasn't feeling well, or maybe she was just so disturbed by the situation they were in. Whatever it was, he went to check on his sibling. And when he went back into the room, he was standing in just a few moments ago prior and he looked at the wall where he had been standing there were bullet holes through the wall oh geez so had he still been standing there he would have been he would have been killed he credits his survival in that moment to the fact that he just happened to go over and check on his sibling so that was timing amazing amazing timing yeah Yeah. and he's a very spiritual person he believes in his religious beliefs very strongly and he believes that was some sort of sign yeah it was a sign he believes that god was protecting him or whatever people are entitled to their beliefs but my point is it's a heavy story and it's not at all an isolated incident. It's a symbol that sort of illustrates the larger context in which my parents were living. And to go from such an environment to a more peaceful and civilized country using the power of education and immigration and ambition and hard work, that to me sounds like a story of resilience. Yeah. And if it is the case, as you say, that resilience is inherited, I imagine I'm fairly lucky that I'm the 35 years that I've been alive, I haven't had to deal with the civil war. Of course, just like everyone else lived through a global pandemic. I shouldn't say like everyone else because a lot of people didn't make it through that pandemic. But those of us who are alive here today, we have. So that was the struggle of my generation 
Whereas the struggle of my parents' generation in the geographic location they were in, their struggle was different. Their yeah, struggle was very war. different. Yeah. So it's different kinds of trauma. One is much yeah. more violent than the other, but to inherit that resilience and make it through the things that I've seen in my life, yeah. it starts to make sense. And I guess I'll just, uh, you can send me the bill after <laughs> for the therapy session. There's really, when we say resilience is inherited, then there's an interplay between the epigenetics or your genes, right? And how that impacts your gene pool or how you healthily survive physically and as well as mentally. But then there's also the trauma that causes the distorted thinking, which can keep the intergenerational trauma alive through addiction and abuse and negative thinking and unhealthy mental coping strategies and dysfunctional families. So while that's happening and that's what we see, what we don't see is the epigenetic changes that are happening at a cellular level, right? So you're getting the genetic polymorphism that keeps the DNA essentially the same, but it's like dropping little markers on the DNA, which increases vulnerability to certain diseases, neurogenerative diseases, and your cognition, how we think your memory and all that good stuff. So it's the very obvious intergenerational trauma that we see in behavior. But then there's also that other play going on in our bodies that we don't see. Intergenerational resilience. And that can be so you make it through. Yeah. And that shows, I think, both biologically in our genes as well as in behavior, right? When you're maybe using more compassion and more love and you're navigating experiences more healthily. When I will say break the cycle, break the cycle. It's hard to break the cycle epigenetically because we don't have really control of that. Or do we, right? And maybe breaking that cycle is through healthy eating, like healthier thinking, better connections that way. And then that sort of modulates what's happening at a DNA level. The more stressed you are, it's affecting you right down to the cellular level, right? It's changing you. And so they say like optimism, for instance, it can be a resilience factor and you can feel better. It's optimism, meditation and joy and healthier connections. It's less stress. It's less glucocorticoid overload less allostatic stress on the body. All that stuff leads to disease and leads to chronic inflammation. And that impacts your physiologically, but it impacts your brain across the lifespan. So too much stress is said to lead to neurodegenerative diseases, right? Parkinson's or Alzheimer's. Does that also apply when a woman is pregnant with a child and she's undergoing, for whatever reason, a lot of stress in her life? Yeah, they call it fetal programming. Yes, Yes. tell me more about that. I'm curious. I'm not an expert on this, but I do know a little bit about stress. It was a really interesting study, a study that was done based on an observation that happened during the war in the Netherlands where they were low in vitamin D while they were pregnant. So I think it's called hypovitamin D. And what they noticed was there was a link with them being pregnant and not having enough vitamin D and a connection with their sons and having schizophrenia. Oh, wow. Yeah. Schizophrenia. Schizophrenia. Holy smokes. And it wasn't by any fault of their own. I think it was during the war or something and they... Stressful environment. Stressful environment, maybe food, maybe not enough sunlight, who knows? So they did this link. So other things they've done with fetal programming is it starts sometimes even before the mother conceives. Oh. Yeah. So when you're pregnant, making sure that there's not a lot of stress, that you're eating well, you're getting lots of support because that increase in cortisol yep. increases that glutocorticoid level and that leads to the fetal programming that it does inform the health of the baby. So then that child comes into the world with already some genetic vulnerabilities and right. then you add stressors onto that and that just impacts them across the lifespan. Wow. So let's just say you have a mother who's under stress and she's in poverty and she's not eating well and she might be smoking and then she gives birth and she's in an abusive environment where she's not getting a lot of support and so 
the baby's not getting care in the first three years. So a lot of things are going on on so many different levels across the lifespan that's really affected. I had this really cool diagram and I don't know the source of it, but it shows a person at conception across the lifespan. So it has the arc and then right across the bottom takes you through the stages across the lifespan and all the different influences like the biological influence, the environmental influence and the social influence and how all of these factors play a role in your quality of life and your health and wellness across the lifespan. All things that are helpful and all those protective factors starting from in utero can improve your quality of life across the lifespan. Less chance that you will have an addiction because you learn to cope well, less re-traumatizing yourself across the lifespan. So being able to hold a job and get along with people, being able to manage your stress in a way that's healthy, that leads to healthier relationships, more support, more social support, less degenerative diseases. And all that being said, sometimes I think it's important to note that some people get cancer and these diseases and it's no fault of their own. The programming is there. We can only do our best. And I think that's the most important thing is just trying to be healthy. I like to say live each moment as a healing moment. I wrote a workbook called The Art of Healing and it was inspired by my own experience of feeling as though I needed a day to recover from the previous day. Every day I lived, I needed a day to recover. And I thought, I'm just chasing my tail here. And I really needed to move into a space where I was healing in every moment. So I try to live like that. I try to live like I'm healing in every moment. And that could be very much like a Buddhist concept. It's not trying to be perfect. It's just trying to be open to learning as I go kind of thing. That's really helped me. But it is a healthier mindset and who knows where it'll take me. But but yeah, it's a really interesting question. Tiffany, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. It has been a learning experience for me. I know that I really enjoyed our pre-show Zoom discussion that we had where we got to really get into that at a deeper level in the podcast episode. And that is exactly what we did today. And I definitely had a few aha moments where I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that. Especially the part about intergenerational resilience. Because that has totally reframed so much for me. That was very helpful for me personally. I imagine it's probably super helpful for some of the viewers out there who've participated in all of this by watching us talk about this? Uh, Some people might argue that point, but it's not meant to reinforce any trauma as being resilient, but it's just to note that we also do inherit that strength. And and that's something that's really important. And some people, it is an aha moment when people think about that because it does reframe your perspective about your own trauma. And yeah, I always liked that point as well. I always thought that was so brilliant uh, because we don't think of it like that. And uh, yeah. My very last question for the episode, is there a message that you want to leave our audience with, whether it's for the local Sault Ste. Marie community or if it's for the global internet community. (laughs) I feel we could have talked about each one of those topics in great detail. So even today, I felt we skimmed over a (laughs) lot of stuff, but it was so great to be here with you and just talk a little bit about that. I would like to invite people to my website at thesoulcompass.com. And if there's anything that interests them, I work with people with art therapy, play therapy, mindfulness meditation. I'm going to be doing some pretty interesting endeavors and activities and events around meditation in particular and art therapy as I move forward. So keep an eye out for that. And maybe we can meet again and talk about some of those things. That sounds Uh, great. I would love to do that. Yeah, but (laughs) that's it. It was really lovely to be here with the two of you today. So thank you so much. Thank you. And for your website visitors, yes, you said it's the Soul Compass. Is that S? S-O-U-L compass? Yes. Okay. Just in case anyone thought it was the other S-O-L-E or anything. Yeah, no, I do get that sometimes. But yeah, T-H-E, soul, S-O-U-L, compass. Compass Compass.com. Dot com. All right. Yeah. Sounds good. We will see you.
you on whichever next episode that you decide to come back on the show. Awesome. <laughs> Thank All you. Right. Bye-bye, <laughs> Tiffany. Take care. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Sue Podcast. Follow us on Spotify, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. And be sure to check out our website at suepodcast.com. That's S-O-O podcast.com. 